This week on the show, we meet FuryBSD. We have NetBSD 9.0 available and we cover what's new in there. OpenBSD's Foundation 2019 campaign wrap-up is also what we have. A retrospective on the OmniOS ZFS-based NFS file servers and how that uh, evolved or de-evolved over time. Uh, NetBSD's fundraising 2020 goals is what we also cover. OpenBSD 8.2 is here with a bunch new uh, things under the hood and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 339, BSD Fundraising, recorded for the 26th of February 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome back to this week's episode. Uh, we should, without further ado, jump right into the headlines, which uh, today reads, Meet Fury BSD, a new desktop BSD distribution. That's Fury, not Furry. Fury, right, right. Le uh, just one R. <laughs> it's not into anything weird. Whoops. <laughs> uh, at its heart, Fury BSD is a very simple beast, according to the site, FuryBSD is a back-to-basics lightweight desktop distribution based on stock FreeBSD. It is basically FreeBSD with the desktop environment pre-configured and several apps pre-installed. The goal is to get uh, up and running quickly on a FreeBSD-based system uh, for your computer. You might be thinking that this sounds a lot like some of the other options out there, like NomadBSD and GhostBSD. The major difference between these uh, is that FuryBSD more closely tracks stock FreeBSD, for example, FuryBSD uses the FreeBSD installer, while the others have created their own installers and utilities. And I think GhostBSD is based on the uh, the TrueOS uh, fork of FreeBSD. FuryBSD may resemble past uh, graphical BSD projects like PCBSD and TrueOS, but FuryBSD is created by a different team to make a different approach focused on tight integration with FreeBSD. This keeps low overhead uh, and maintains compatibility with upstream. Uh, one key focus of FuryBSD is that it will be a small live media with a few assistive tools to test uh, drivers for hardware and stuff, making it uh, a good choice to have on a USB stick to take with you to the store to try out laptops and see what uh, works and what doesn't and so on. So currently, when you go to the FuryBSD homepage, you can download either an XFCE uh, lightweight image or a KDE slightly heavier image. Uh, and they're currently working on a GNOME-based version as well. The lead dev behind it is Joe Maloney, who uh, used to work on PCBSD. He contributed to a bunch of the other uh, BSD projects like PCBSD, and he also worked with uh, Eric Tujan on uh, GhostBSD and to rewrite the GhostBSD live CD. Along the way, he picked up a better understanding of the BSDs and started to form his own ideas of what he would like his distribution to be like. Uh, Joe is joined by several others, uh, Jaron Parsons, Josh Smith, and Damien Sideropoulos or something. I, I'm not, I, sorry for butchering that. At the moment, uh, it's not much more than a pre-configured FreeBSD setup. However, they have a list of goals in mind, including providing a sane framework for loading third-party uh, proprietary graphics drivers and wireless firmware and so on, clean up the live CD experience a bit so that it's more friendly, uh, support printing out of the box, uh, add a few more default applications to provide a more complete desktop experience, 
integrate a ZFS replication tool for backing up and restoring, which uh, can be quite useful, you know, if you need to uh, boot your computer from a live uh, CD like the BSD and use that to restore a ZFS backup, that could be very useful. Live image persistence options, um, a custom package repo with different uh, default port options, um, continuous integration for application updates, um, doing more quality assurance on FreeBSD on the desktop, um, reporting bugs back to FreeBSD and, and the ports group, uh, getting more artwork, color schemes, and theming stuff done, uh, and including directory services integration stuff as well. And they say if you want to help out, they have uh, some links to their forum and GitHub when they're looking for help with stuff. And in the end, they say, although I've not tried it yet, and this author at uh, It's Foss says, I have a good feeling about FuryBSD. It looks like a project uh, in capable hands. Joe's also been thinking about how to make the BSD desktop experience better. And unlike the majority of Linux distributions that are basically a retheme of Ubuntu, the devs behind FuryBSD know that in the end, they can choose uh, quality over bells and whistles. I like their uh, logo that they've chosen. That's a nice one. So yeah, uh, good luck with uh, Fury BSD, and uh, yeah, we'll keep you updated on anything that they uh, will announce in the future uh, in this episode or future episodes, of course. Uh, speaking of announcements, uh, we talked about this, I think, the last episode uh, when we r still reviewed the release candidate, but now it's available NetBSD 9.0. Woohoo, nice and shiny, fresh from the <laughs> make file, probably. <laughs> so um, here's the announcement on netbsd.org, of course. Uh, that's from February 14. And the uh, introduction reads that the NetBSD project is pleased to announce NetBSD 9.0, the 17th major release of the NetBSD operating system. And this release brings significant improvements in terms of hardware support, quality assurance, security, and along with new features and hundreds of bug fixes. Uh, some highlights of this release are the following. Of, it's a long list, but we'll um, cover the highlights, of course. So they group that into hardware, security, features, and uh, third-party components. In the hardware section, of course, everything runs NetBSD pretty much. And so the hardware section is quite big, but uh, the biggest item they have here is support for ARCH64, which is 64-bit ARMv8-8 machines. Uh, yeah, in particular, they uh, have support for the ARM server-ready compliant machines, which is SBBR and SBSA. Uh, so that's uh, the server class hardware that has ACPI to enumerate things like PCIe cards and so on. Means that this release of NetBSD works on the Amazon Graviton and Graviton 2 bare metal instances at AWS, um, the AMD Optron A1100 ARM machines, the Ampere EMAG 8180, the Cavium Thunder X, the Marvel Armada 8040, uh, and in QMU with the Tiano Core EDK stuff. Uh, so it gives uh, NetBSD on a bunch of these more server grade ARM platforms. Plus, uh, they've added support for a bunch of uh, recent SOCs like uh, AllWinner A64, H5, and H6, the AM Logic S905, uh, 805, 905D, 905W, 905X, etc. The Broadcom BCM2837, uh, the NVIDIA Trega X1, a bunch of QMU Vert uh, emulated machines, and the Rockchip RK3328 and 3399. Uh, boards. And it means that for ARM64, 
NetBSD can support up to 256 CPUs. The interesting stuff for ARMv7 that they have is actually the symmetric and asymmetric multiprocessing support. So it's big dot little, basically when your ARM board actually has two different sized CPUs, uh, some slower ones that use less battery and some faster ones that will use a lot more power. Uh, and an OS that actually understands that and can decide when to activate the big CPU and when to save power uh, can be quite interesting. Uh, and they also have a single generic kernel that supports uh, most of the device tree-based booting stuff and a whole list of SOCs that are supported. And that provides uh, for up to eight CPUs on the ARMv7 uh, hardware. With UEFI bootloader. Yep, they also have updated GPU drivers, uh, adding support for many recent Intel cards, improved support for NVIDIA and AMD cards, uh, and their uh, DRM slash KMS subsystem is now caught up to Linux 4.4. Uh, and they also have some GPU drivers for ARM, including the DRM and KMS uh, drivers there, the basic frame buffer driver, uh, and some simple frame buffer drivers. Of course, NetBSD also has their own hardware accelerated virtualization now with uh, the NVMM hypervisor. And they've also made some improvements to NetBSD as a guest OS with support for the QMU firmware configuration device, Verdeo M uh, MMIO, and uh, PCIe, or sorry, PCI support for ARM and uh, devices, and then also Hyper-V support for the x86 machines. Mm. Very nice. Yep, and then uh, work on kernel ASLR, uh, Kleek, uh, kernel address sanitizer, kernel undefined behavior sanitizer, kernel code coverage, uh, userland sanitizers, kernel heap hardening. They completed an audit of the network stack, which you can go read about on their blog from a link there. It's a bunch of work on ptrace, and they've also removed a number of old and unmaintained components, including the net ISDN related drivers, uh, the net. Um, ATM related drivers and Midway drivers and old NDIS and SVR 3 and 4 drivers. Uh, you know, stuff that you, you couldn't find the hardware uh, in a garage sale if you tried. <laughs> that type of stuff. Uh, plus, they have their uh, many improvements to NPF, their new native firewall, uh, updated ZFS, uh, which is now usable for daily use. Uh, it isn't just experimental anymore and support for the Broadcom full Mac wireless drivers, the Amazon Elastic Network driver, uh, Mellanox Connect X4, and uh, 5 and 6 Ethernet adapters, uh, and a bunch of updates to existing stuff. And they've reworked the SATA subsystem, uh, so it now supports multiple commands in transit, uh, native command queuing, and is uh, better handling of errors reported by the drives. And they've also improved their USB net framework to provide better USB Ethernet driver support. Yep, that's uh, a long list. Uh -huh. Then you got your basic software updates, including uh, switching to GCC 7.4, GDB 8.3, LLVM 7, uh, OpenSSL 1.1.1D, OpenSSH 8, uh, and SQLite 3.26. And, you know, a ton more things that uh, would just take too long to mention, but they're all in the uh, change logs if you would like to go read that. So congratulations, uh, NetBSD, for another uh, big release. And uh, if you are running that already or have upgraded to it, uh, let us know how it went. Uh, it will certainly be nice to, to see uh, more from that user perspective, for example.
time for our news roundup this week. Uh, we have the OpenBSD Foundation 2019 campaign wrap-up for you uh, over at undeadly.org. And Ken Westerback writes that uh, he has the update of the OpenBSD Foundation's work. So the writing goes, as the OpenBSD Foundation begins to prepare the 2020 fundraising campaign, we would like to thank all the contributors to our 2019 campaign. So their target for 2019 was uh, 300,000 Canadian dollars. And our community's continued generosity, combined with our corporate donors, exceeded that nicely. In addition, uh, they received the largest single donation in their history, 380,000 Canadian dollars from Smartisan. So that already uh, pushed them over the, <laughs> their goal. Very nice. The return of Google was another welcome event. Altogether, 2019 was our most successful campaign to date, yielding 692,000 Canadian dollars in total. Woohoo! That's a lot. Uh, we thank all our donors, Iridium, which is Smartisan, uh, Platinum, Yandex and Google, Gold, Microsoft and Facebook, Silver, Two Keys, and Bronze, uh, with Genoa and Thingst Canary but especially our community of smaller donors whose contributions are the bedrock of our support. Thank you all. And uh, they have one last event of note. Late in 2019, we registered with Benevity. Benevity, which is benevity.org, is used by corporate employee donation matching programs. When, while the 2019 returns were modest, we hope that employees with access to such programs will be able to attract substantial matching corporate donations through Benevity. We continue to seek other organizations that can provide similar services for Canadian nonprofit corporations like the OpenBSD Foundation. Yeah, uh, so if you work somewhere where uh, your employer will match uh, charitable donations that you make, uh, then consider doing that for your favorite BSD. Uh, you can see some of the things in the if you look at the list of donors on uh, the FreeBSD Foundation's website, you can see a bunch of its donation matching and so on. It can make... Uh, a big difference you know whatever amount you're willing to give if your employer will double it why not <laughs> oh yeah for sure and it worked very well for openbsd and uh, so everyone yeah thanks for donating and making their campaign such a success and i guess they will put that money into good use for developing the system or hackathons and things like that next we have a retrospective on their or on on omnios zfs based nfs file server yeah, uh, so this is over from uh, Chris Seibman's blog at the University of Toronto. Uh, they've basically since retired their OmniOS file servers and switched. Uh, I think they're running ZFS on Linux on Ubuntu or something now. I forget. Uh, we covered it before. Uh, but they wanted to look back at how using OmniOS worked out for them. There's links in this article if you want to know more about how they set up the OmniOS machines and so on. They have links to previous posts about that. But anyway, so our Omni OS file servers have been out of service for about six months now, uh, which makes it somewhat past time for a retrospective on how they worked out. Our Omni OS file servers uh, followed our Solaris file servers, which I wrote two retrospectives on back in the day, and have now been replaced with our Linux file servers. To be honest, I've been sitting on my hands about writing this retrospective because we have mixed feelings about our Omni OS file server. I'll put the summary up front. OmniOS worked reasonably well for us over its lifespan here. And looking back, I think it was almost certainly the right choice for us at the time uh, that we made that choice, which is in about 2013 and 2014. However, it was not without issues that marred our experience uh, with it in practice, although not enough to make me regret that we ran it uh, and ran it for as long as we did. 
Part of our issues were likely due to a design uh, mistake in making our file servers too big, although this design mistake was probably uh, magnified when we were unable to use the Intel 10 gigabit networking on OmniOS. On one hand, our OmniOS file servers worked uh, almost always reliably. Like our Solaris file servers that it replaced, they ran quietly for years without needing much attention, delivering NFS file services to our Ubuntu servers. Specifically, we ran them for about five years, that's 2014 through 2019, although we started migrating away at the end of 2018. Over this time, we had only minor hardware issues and not all that many uh, disk failures, and we suffered no data loss at all, uh, with ZFS checksums likely saving us several times and certainly providing good reassurances. Our overall environment was easy to manage uh, and was pretty much free in the face of things like failed disks. I'm pretty sure that our users saw an NFS environment that was solid, reliable, and performed well uh, pretty much all of the time, uh, which was an important thing. So OmniOS basically delivered the file server environment that we wanted. He says, our, our Linux iSCSI backends ran so problem-free that I almost forgot to mention them here. We basically got to ignore them the entire time we ran our OmniOS file server environment. I think they routinely had multi-year uptimes, certainly didn't go down outside of power shutdowns, which whether those are scheduled or not. On the other hand, we ran into real limitations with OmniOS and our file servers were always somewhat brittle under unusual conditions. The largest limitation was the lack of working 10 gigabit uh, Ethernet uh, Intel drivers. Now that we have Linux file servers and we can use those 10 gigabit uh, drivers, it's fairly obvious what we were missing and that it really did make a difference. Our OmniOS file servers were also not fully reliable. They would lock up, reboot, or perform very badly under an array of fortunately unexpected conditions to a far greater degree uh, than we would have liked, for example, when the file systems uh, hit their quota limits. We also had periodic issues with having two iSCSI networks where OmniOS would decide to use only one of them uh, for one or more of the SCSI targets, and we had to fiddle with things in magic ways to restore redundancy. Uh, it says something that our OmniOS file servers were by far the most crash-prone systems we operated, even if they didn't crash very often. Most of the causes of these issues were identified uh, much like our 10 gigabit uh, Ethernet problem, but they were never addressed in the OmniOS uh, and Illumos kernels to the best of his knowledge. Uh, but to be clear here, I did not expect them the, to do that. The OmniOS community only has so many person hours available, and some of what we uncovered were hard problems in things like kernel memory management. Our OmniOS file servers were also harder for us to manage for an array of reasons that mostly covered when we wrote about why we were uh, wouldn't be using Illumos in their new file servers. And in general, there are costs we paid for not using a mainstream OS um, and costs that would be even higher today. That being said, there are also some things that I uh, currently do miss about having OmniOS, such as having Dtrace and our awesome collection of Dtrace scripts. Ubuntu may someday have an equivalent through the eBPF tools, but Ubuntu 18.04 today does not. Uh, in the final summary, I don't regret us running our OmniOS servers when we did and for as long as we did, but on the whole, I'm glad that we're not running them anymore, and I think our current file server architecture is better overall. I'm thankful for OmniOS and the Salumos' faithful service here uh, without missing it. P.S. Some of our OmniOS issues may have been caused by using iSCSI instead of directly attached disks, and certainly using directly attached disks would have made for smaller file servers but I suspect that we'd have found another set of problems with directly attached disks under Lumos and some of our problems, such as the file system 
uh, slowing down when it hit quotas were likely to be independent of how the disks were actually attached. Yeah, it's good to kind of look back at, on your storage needs from time to time and like evaluate, is this still what we want to have? Is the feature set still uh, what people use today and other things that have crept up over the years? Uh, so yeah, it's looking at alternatives is also uh, good from time to time. And it seems to work well for them now. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, on our side, too bad they didn't give FreeBSD with ZFS a try, because then they'd have the 10 and 40 and 100 gigabit network drivers and good night SCSI and all that, and still have Dtrace. Um, but, you know, one of the main reasons they gave up on, on OmniOS was, you know, using a not a less mainstream OS was causing the management headaches. Yeah, I can understand that. I think Chris was tired of being the only guy that knew the innards of the OS they're using. <laughs> yeah, being the single point of failure is kind of like, yeah, people depend on me, but um, if I want to go on holiday and this thing goes uh, poof, then I can say goodbye to holidays. So, yeah. Still, FreeBSD ZFS, it's easy enough to deploy. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We, we both can uh, definitely attest to that, that it's very, very nice and working fine. Okay, um, back to the show. Uh, it's time for our next item, uh, which is the NetBSD Fundraising 2020 goal. It's all about uh, foundations this time and the fundraisings they're doing. And the NetBSD blog has this item read as following. Is it really more than 10 years since we last had an official fundraising drive? Looking at old TNF financial reports, uh, they noticed that they have been doing quite well financially over the last years with a steady stream of small and medium donations and most of the time only moderate expenditures. The last fundraising drive back in 2009 was a giant success and they have lived off it since then until now. And in the last two or three years, the core team was able to find developers doing various tasks of funding development. Not all of them ended in a full success and were integrated into the main source tree, uh, like the Wi-Fi IEEE 802.11 net uh, rework, which still needs to be finished. But others pushed the project forward in big steps, like support for ARM server-ready compliant machines. We mentioned this earlier. And uh, debuting with the new ARCH64 architecture in NetBSD 9. So there is uh, room for more improvements and not always volunteer time is available. So funding some critical parts of development makes NetBSD better and faster or faster, better. I think it's better sooner, but yes. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> Besides the big development contracts, they often buy hardware for developers working on special machines and we also invest in their server infrastructure. Ah, so that's, make, that's how they make NetBSD run everywhere. They just buy developers' machines and let them <laughs> make it work. Okay, um, but now it is time. They would like to officially ask for donations this year. Uh, they're trying to raise 50,000, uh, I think this is US dollars, yeah, in 2020, to support ongoing development and new upcoming contracts. Helping to make NetBSD 10 happen uh, this year in 2020 and be the best NetBSD ever. And as a reminder, the NetBSD Foundation is a nonprofit organization, uh, 501c3 in the Internal Revenue Code. If you are a U.S. company or citizen, your donations may be tax deductible, and your donations may be eligible for matching offers from your employer. Okay, fifty thousand, I think, is doable. It's uh, February, so or mid-February, so uh, that you should be able to get that. And we'll keep you posted if that happens uh, sooner or later. Next, uh, we have the release of OpenSSH 8.2, uh, which also happened uh, in the last couple of days, or February 14th. 
and is available uh, in many places now. Once again, we'd like to thank the OpenSSH community for their continued support of the project, especially those who contribute code, patches, bug reports, uh, tested snapshots, or donated to the project. So starting with some future uh, deprecation notices, uh, it is now possible to perform chosen prefix attacks against the SHA-1 hashing algorithm for less than $50,000 US. For this reason, we will be disabling the SSH-RSA public key signature algorithm that depends on SHA-1 by default in a near future release. This algorithm is unfortunately still widely used despite the uh, existence of better uh, alternatives, um, being the only remaining public key signature algorithm that was specified in the original RFC. So alternatives I recommend if you use RFC 8332 RSA, then you get a SHA-2 signature, so SHA-256 or 512. These algorithms have the advantage of using the same key type of SSH-RSA, but use the safer uh, SHA-2 hash algorithm. These have been supported since OpenSSH 7.2 and uh, have already been used as the default for a long time. So you might just need to regenerate your keys and make sure you have not SHA-1 signed keys. Uh, or you can use the SSH ED25519 signature algorithm, which has been supported since OpenSSH uh, 6.5, and that'll be fine. Uh, or the ECDSA algorithms, which also use uh, SHA-2, and these have been supported since OpenSSH 5.7. To check whether a server is using the weak uh, public key algorithm for host authentication, you can try to SSH to it with the option host key algorithm equals minus SHA-RSA, and that will disable that one algorithm and you'll get an error if, if it's the only supported one. Uh, if host key verification fails and no other supported host keys are available, the server software on that host should be upgraded. Uh, a future release of OpenSSH will also enable the update host keys by default uh, to allow a client to automatically migrate to uh, the better algorithm. So it will verify the key that like it has before and when it does that it will also grab the other keys of that server so that when the server switches to a newer algorithm you won't get a scary warning saying hey the key is not the same or whatever they also have some uh, security updates ssh sshd ssh keygen uh, and so on they're uh, removing the ssh rsa algorithm from the accepted uh, certificate signatures uh, algorithms and instead we'll use the RSA SHA-2-512 uh, signature algorithm by default. Uh, certificates are at special risk for that aforementioned SHA-1 collision vulnerability as the attacker has effectively unlimited time in which to craft a collision that yields them a valid certificate. Uh, OpenSSH versions prior to 7.2 do not accept the newer SHA-2 algorithm and will refuse to accept certificates signed by OpenSSH 8.2 and newer. Uh, so, you know, stop using such old OpenSSH. Um, older clients and servers may use other CA key types, such as ED25519, which has been supported since OpenSSH 6.5, uh, or even the ECDSA, which has been around since OpenSSH 5.7. Again, if you can't upgrade, then you'll have to just switch uh, algorithms there. Uh, then there's some potentially incompatible changes. Uh, like we mentioned, the removal of the SSH RSA uh, algorithm there. Uh, the release also removes Diffie-Hellman Group 14 SHA-1 uh, from the default key exchange proposal from the client and server, because again, SHA-1. Um, SSH keygen, uh, relate, uh, command line options related to generation and screening uh, of safe prime numbers used by the Diffie-Hellman Group Exchange 
star uh, key change elegance have changed. Uh, most options have been folded under the capital O flag now. Um, the SSHD listener process title visible in PS has changed to include information about the number of connections that are currently attempting authentication. So you can actually see how many partially open connections there are in the process title. That's useful. But if you have scripts that are looking for the SSHD process, watch out that the name might be different now. And the SSH key helper is a new binary that's been added for the FIDO slash U2F support to provide address space isolation for token middleware libraries, including its internal one. And it needs to be installed in the expected path under user libexec or similar. Okay. Uh, so the big changes over the last version are that FIDO U2F support that we just mentioned. They've also added an include SSHD config keyword that allows including additional configuration files using a glob pattern. So you can actually have you know uh, an ssh config.d directory somewhere with uh, fragments in it and and change the config instead of having to modify the base config super useful to have that kind of thing and then lots of other uh changes that you can read about uh if you're interested in what's different in open ssh yeah it's good uh, to be always uh on the good side of features but also deprecating some of the older uh, algorithms that are less secure these days so uh Get your fresh open SSH version installed everywhere. Time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have Freenas versus Unrate, the grudge match on YouTube. I guess they're doing a comparison. So if you want to compare Freenas to Unraid, check this out. Unraid's kind of weird. I wouldn't recommend it, but see what uh, Wendell has to say about that. Uh, yep. And you can make your own decisions, of course, after watching this video. But uh, I guess uh, it's <laughs> it's it's an easy choice. Uh, next item we have is the Unix toolbox over at cb.vu. And it is a collection of Unix, BSD, and Linux commands that take tasks which... Uh, or are tasks that are useful for IT work for advanced users. Uh, which is basically a practical guide with concise explanations. However, the reader is supposed to know what he or she is doing. That's pretty much always the case. Um, but so you can get an overview of like system things, like how to determine the running kernel or uh, wh how what's the uptime of the system, information about hardware, how to get various information about users, and uh, system limits. So there's all plenty of commands that you can just uh, either quickly search for or you know, oh, what, what's a similar command in like the user's uh, administration area that I would quickly need to make certain things happen. And you can just use this to uh, find out a specific section and get the command. Ah, this is the equivalent command on Linux, for example, for, I don't know, PW user Dell, for example. It's not really a Rosetta Stone one-to-one -one mapping, but they show like how to figure out how many CPUs or threads uh, a machine has and how much memory it has. Or, you know, uh, it's LSPCI, like a list of PCI devices on Linux, and it's PCIconf-L on FreeBSD and so on. And they show how to get the list of USB devices and a bunch of other stuff. Oh, yeah, this is pretty comprehensive and various areas are covered. Mm -hmm. So this might be a good bookmark to in case you want to quickly look up something. It might be in there. Uh, next up, we have a game uh, running on OpenBSD called Rigs of Rods, which is a soft body physics engine. And they have uh, all the information you need to know about it if you want to get at it. 
yeah, to get your gaming gear uh, running on OpenBSD, why not? Learn you a little bit about physics along the way. Yes, it's an interesting uh, physics game if you like throwing ragdolls downstairs and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Then we have uh, some other news and meetup stuff going on. Pat from the NY Nicebug writes in and says they've uh, now posted the uh, meeting we teased about last week. Um, so if you want to see uh, Dr. Paul Vixie's talk uh, titled Operating Systems as Dumb Pipes, then the meeting uh, will be happening uh, Tuesday, March 3rd uh, because of Paul Vixie's travel schedule. Uh, so it won't be our, their usual time of the first Wednesday of the month. It'll be on a Tuesday. Uh, and the location will be the NYU Tandon Engineering Building. Uh, so this will be at the New York University, 370 J Street, room 1013 on the 10th floor in Brooklyn. Notice you should RSVP for this meeting by emailing RSVP at list.nicebug.org. And uh, you'll receive an auto response and that will be good enough uh, for verification. Again, because it's happening at the university, they have to jump through a couple of hoops here. Yes. Anyway, the meeting will be from 1845 to 2100, and they also plan for it to be streamable in all the usual places. So uh, if you head over to the NiceBug website, you'll be able to watch the live stream if you can't make it uh, to New York. Mm -hmm. That's certainly good for uh, re-watching in case you can't make it there, uh, because Paul Wixie is always interesting as a speaker. Uh, next up, we have the Hamilton BSD user group. Uh, we've picked a name and have... The domain, we're still in the process of setting up a website, so I'm still using the old one for now. But uh, the next Hamilton BSD user group uh, will be Tuesday, March 10th. Uh, we'll start at 6.30 again. Uh, and I think last time we were there until like 11. So, you know, it's, there's no you don't have to leave when the time when it's over, it says. It's just we didn't want to scare people and expect you can leave early if you want to. It doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, we had 11 people last time. We're hoping for uh, to break a dozen this time at least. Uh, so. Uh, we're going to be at the same location again this time. It worked out well enough, uh, and we're just not organized enough yet to uh, to be ready to do talks and so on. So having it at uh, a restaurant with access to, to food and beverages and so on worked out well, so we're going to do that again. Uh, so yes, Tuesday, March 10th, uh, starting at 6.30 at the Boston Pizza in Hamilton. Uh, I hope everybody comes out. We'll be doing a general BSD discussion, maybe trying to focus that a bit more this time, get everybody in the same discussion, although that's not required. We're also planning for future meetings to see how we do that. Uh, some work on the website. We also have some kind of junior job stuff we might be looking at uh, if you want to get involved, including even I might see if I can't arm twist someone into helping get the old episodes of BSD Now put up into the, uh, the new BSD Now website. Uh, and as usual, uh, if you have any BSD or ZFS questions, do bring them with you and we will see what we can do. And, you know, if you have copies of the uh, ZFS books you would like me to sign, I will do that. And uh, maybe Graf will make an appearance as well. Ooh. Hope to see lots of people there. If we couldn't make the first time, then the second time is always uh, the charm, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not lost. It's completely open to anyone uh, joining or rejoining. And, uh, yeah, who knows how this will grow over time. Yeah, uh, and if... Uh, you're in Europe. Uh, we have the BSD uh, user group in Stockholm, which will be meeting on March 3rd at uh, 1800, right at the central train station at the B3 offices. Um, so uh, we included the meetup link there if you want to uh, head over there and check that out. 
And if you are hosting a meetup that we don't know about, uh, let us know uh, at feedback at bsdnow.tv. Let us know a little bit ahead of time because we're doing pre-recordings for upcoming uh, travels and uh, events we're going to. So if you want to have it announced here on the show, which could potentially get you a couple more visitors or attendees, then uh, let us know and we'll be happy to um, put that in our um, section where the other meetups are. Indeed. Uh and you know it's very rewarding to have these meetups uh, you know i was very glad to get to sit around and talk about bsd with a bunch of people uh, a couple of weeks ago and looking forward to doing it in a couple of weeks as well mm-hmm. yeah especially if you're the uh, supposedly the only person in your uh country your village your i don't know where you are uh it is interesting when you feel like there's no other people around and then you put out the call and then 10 other people show up out of the woodwork. Yeah. It's like, aha, I knew there was people around. <laughs> They're just being all quiet and cagey. <laughs> yeah, you never know if the cashier at the supermarket uh, is using BSD. And so, yeah, why not? Let's meet up. It's time for feedback and questions in this week. Uh, we have three people. And the first one is uh, Shirk Dog, uh, which is a, a fairly familiar name. Michael Shirk. Yep. yep. And so uh, has a question, uh, which goes like this. In episode 331, there was a beastie bit about async or sync zil slash uh, slog that got me thinking about the limitations in my ZFS setup. I went to Micro Center, good computer store chain, little advertisement on the side. Okay, uh, and noticed uh, 120 gig SSD drives for 20 bucks. Okay, I hope you didn't just notice them and also bought them. Uh, so here's the setup on his server currently. So he has root on ZFS with uh, RAID 10, basically two mirrors uh, in a RAID 1 and then a, a RAID 0 over it, which is then RAID 10. Uh, so his first thought, S-Lock mirror, or even better, adding L2Arc mirror. But my question is, would that help in my current setup? So his Mirror 0 uh, VDEV is a 1 terabyte VDEV and Mirror 1 is a 5 terabyte VDEV. My workload is not incredibly heavy, free NAS, Beehive VM on a Zvol, network security tools, etc. But would I get additional performance adding L2 Arc mirrors to Zroot or would it be better to just install the OS in a mirror with the SSDs keeping Zroot on the main storage in a different pool? Yeah, so in in regular FreeBSD today, yeah, the... Um, Adding a slog isn't that useful unless you're running a database or something. Although uh, VMs on Zvols maybe can benefit from that, but you never need more than 32 gigabytes for slog, and probably even that is overkill. Um, and then L2Arc is of quite limited usefulness in most cases. Um, interesting in FreeBSD head, if you're running 13, uh, we do now have the special VDEV uh, type. So you can add a mirror of SSDs as a special VDEV uh, and mark it to have all the metadata about your data be written to the SSDs. Um, so this can help a lot for file server workloads where, you know, when you have to do the directory scanning and that kind of stuff, it comes from the SSD, but the big blocks that are the actual files you're storing are stored uh, on your regular hard drives. Um, and then there's... Uh, new property on your data sets when you have a special VDEV, where you can say any blocks on this data set that are smaller than this size, like, you know, all my 8K blocks or something, those should also go to the special VDEV rather than actually going to a normal VDEV. 
The problem with adding those after the fact is only new rights are going to be impacted here, right? So all the data that's already on your pool isn't going to suddenly move over to this SSD. The metadata for new stuff will be there. You do want to make sure you use Mirror for the special VDEV, though, because it would really suck if you lost the SSD with your metadata on it, because now you have lots of data, but you can't read any of it because all the metadata is missing. But basically, that won't be out until 12.2, probably, or, or FreeBSD 13. So if you're running a release, it's, you know, this new feature isn't ready yet, or isn't available yet. It's ready, but not available yet. So on an older version of ZFS, then your probably best bet is, like you mentioned, maybe move the OS to the two 120 gig SSDs. Uh, and you're not going to benefit that much from trying to add them to the pool. If you're doing a VM, a uh, virtual machine heavy workload, um, and you're doing a lot of synchronous writes where the latency matters, then maybe a slog helps. Although $20 SSDs are probably not the right device to use for a slog. You'll eventually wear them out and have issues there. And yeah, like we said, L2 Arc, not that helpful, especially if you don't have enough memory, because every entry, every block on the L2 Arc requires a header in RAM that says, hey, that block's actually over on this SSD. And if you fill your arc with those, then you're getting no caching in RAM, and that's less useful. Mm. And the L2 arc content is currently lost every time you reboot. There's work upstream to make it persistent, but that's not released yet. Yeah, that's all in the pipe. If it's a file server, you know, good uptime, that makes sense. If it's your desktop where you reboot it frequently, then an L2 arc is definitely a waste of time. So the special VDEV is uh, quite interesting, especially when doing newer builds. Or, you know, even adding it to an older one will help just only newly written data, but you can even just do a send-receive to rewrite your data so that it'll start using the the metadata SSDs. But like I said, for the special VDEVs, you're going to want to make sure you have at least mirrors because you don't want to lose all your metadata. Yeah, it's important to keep that on stable storage. Okay, uh, thin, I think that covers uh, the question and uh, gave a proper answer. Even that answer would uh, would have cost a lot if you just bought consulting for just that <laughs> question, right? Uh, so here you get it pretty much for free. And uh, yeah, hopefully your pool will be uh, happy without it. Yeah, I don't know how much more free you can get. We don't even have ads. <laughs> <laughs> See? It just requires you to open your email and send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Um, next up is uh, Master One with the following. Oh, a ZFS plus suspend and resume question. Uh, goes like this. Do you consider the use of ZFS on a laptop to be safe when using suspend to RAM? Because during my test some time ago, I remember seeing some messages concerning NVMe Zero on resume, though I can't quite recall what they were all about. Something about resubmitting queued IO and a write or another occasion, some more messages... Right. Uh, so my laptop actually does the exact same thing. Um, so yes, uh, ZFS with suspend RAM is fine. Um, sometimes it seems the NVMe driver on FreeBSD wasn't resetting quite right, and the device uh, would time out and reset and then come up. Uh, the only thing I noticed is sometimes on resume, for one or two seconds, the disk didn't actually, like reads wouldn't happen until the device finished resetting. Um, but I've never had any problem with it. Um, I think Warner Lush worked through that issue, and I think the fix is in head, but I'm not 100% sure. I haven't. I need to update the OS on my laptop sometime, and I don't know when I'm going to find time to do that. Mm. But could very well be that uh, he fixed this already, and it will just come down. Yes, uh, but yes, in general, 
uh, it seems to be safe. There are lots of people running FreeBSD with ZFS on root on their laptops and suspend resuming all the time. And I am one of them. Yeah, it's it's quite the experience and you don't want to go back to the old ways of, oh, I can always suspend, but resume, eh, not so much. But nowadays? Well, this one is more the worry was, uh, was data maybe getting not written correctly, but worst case, it seems to be that the NVMe device knows it was trying to write it, but then the device suspended. When it woke up, that one timed out and it retried and finished the write then. But luckily, ZFS uh, would be fine if that write did get lost. It would just roll back the one transaction and be fine. And uh, last but not least is Micah Roth about ZFS write caching. Uh, Micah writes, hey guys, love the show. Keep it up. Thank you. Glad Alan is back, but it was also nice to have some different voices on the show too. Well, we might be doing that again soon. So We have some surprises sometimes, so <laughs> the only way to find out is to keep listening to episodes <laughs> to see who's on the, on the mic this time. Okay, the question. Uh, I'm a little bit lost about how ZFS caching with respect to rights works. I asked this clarification a while back on Reddit and got an incredibly generous and detailed reply from a user named txg sync really oh great thanks txg sync if you're listening okay um but i was hoping you could try to confirm that uh what he traced is still the behavior in current zfs so that is when a transaction acquires a dva due to allocation via txg to dmu tx to spa path they are migrated onto the arc mru list so a transaction group that has just been synced to disk does, in fact, remain in the arc until evicted and can thus be read from the arc. Also hoping for a discussion on where I can learn about what tuning can be adjusted to encourage the MRU to stay in arc or L2 arc longer. When you start writing, there, uh, like if you're running top on FreeBSD and you can see the breakdown of the different uh, arcs uh, segments in in top. Um, so when you start writing data, it goes into the anonymous area of the arc. Basically, as you're writing, the OS says, hey, I got some data, and the arc's like, here's a buffer you can put it into. Then uh, when it goes to sync that, as it actually gives it a place on the disk to write it to, then it moves, like they said, to the MRU. So the arc itself is indexed by this uh, DVA, or data virtual address which is basically the ZFS sector number that that data is at. So ZFS for each VDEV has uh, basically the offset within that VDEV where the data resides. Uh, in a mirror, it's pretty close to the sector number of the disk, although you know it's relative to the partition and relative to the start of ZFS where there's this four megabyte header. Anyway. This is uh, important to understand how that works, if especially when you're looking at features like the uh, RAID-Z expansion that's coming up. Uh, so in a RAID-Z, the DVA number zero is on the first disk in the, in the RAID-Z, and then the next DVA is on the next disk, and it goes across like that and then wraps around, uh, meaning that that's why you have to do this reflow operation when you're expanding a RAID-Z uh, because you can't change what that sector number is, right? If, if it was in sector 100, if you just add an extra column, then those numbers aren't going to make sense. And that's why everything has to be reflowed, just like changing the width of a, a column in a text editor. Anyway, uh, so the arc is indexed by those DVAs. Um, and so the data stays in the anonymous arc until it's actually being 
written to the disk. And then it, once it knows a DVA, it can put it in the uh, most recently used part of the arc. Uh, and yes, that way, if you try to read data that you just wrote, it will come out of the arc and not have to go read it back off disk. So now for trying to keep stuff in the MRU longer. So uh, you might be interested in the talk I gave at uh, VBSDCon and at FOSDEM about how the ARC actually works. But in general, the ARC is up to a certain size, whatever you've configured uh, your system as, and the default is 75 to 95% of all of your memory. So that's the maximum size of the ARC, uh, which in the ARC algorithm is, is the variable C. Uh, and then there's a variable P, which defaults to half of that. And that defines which half of the arc is for most frequently used, and the rest of it is for most recently used. Uh, and then the arc, the adaptive replacement cache, the way it adapts is by actually changing that p-value, sliding it back and forth to get the most uh, effective cache. So when something does get evicted from the arc, it goes on the ghost list for one of those two caches, either the most recently used or most frequently used cache. And when something is in the most recently used cache, if it gets used again, it moves to the frequently used cache. Uh, so recently used is, we've used this recently, we might need it again. If we keep using it, then it goes to the frequently used cache. And if we don't, it eventually falls out of the cache because more recent stuff comes in to replace it. But when stuff does fall out of the cache, it goes on this ghost list. Then when you're looking for a block of data that's possibly cached, if it's not in cache but it is in the ghost list, then the ARC is like, damn, if we had made that cache, either the frequently or recently used one, just a little bit bigger, that ghost item would have still been in the cache. So it changes the p-value to take some space away from the, the cache that wouldn't have helped in that case and give it to the cache that would have helped. So every time there's a cache miss, if it was uh, just barely a miss, then that cache gets bigger so that next time it'll be a hit instead of a miss. And so the arc will sit there adjusting that uh, split between recently used and frequently used back and forth every time one of them works better than the other. So in general, there's not much tuning to do there. It's already doing which one of those is going to work best. Your only real control is the total size of the arc. Yeah, how much you would dedicate from your main memory for it. Yeah, how much memory you're giving the cache. For the L2 arc, uh, there are some tunables. Uh, by default, we limit the rate we will put data into the L2 arc to avoid wearing out the SSD. Basically, as data is getting close to being evicted from the arc but isn't being evicted just yet, we start writing that to the L2 arc. But we do it at a limited rate, and so we only load some of that data, not necessarily all of it, to the uh, L2 arc. And then uh, if that data then ends up falling off the arc and it's now in the L2 arc, uh, when we go to read it, oh, we can get it from the L2 arc instead of having to go to the slower disk. And then it gets reloaded back into the arc as recently used and bumped back up. Again, the downside is that if you have a very large L2 arc, it's your arc ends up getting filled with these pointers saying that data is on the L2 arc at this address uh, instead of copies of that data. So if you have too big of an L2 arc, you can actually take up most of the space of your arc and end up um, not having as much available for actually caching data. So anyway, I recommend my talk on how the arc works. It explains it a little better and has some diagrams. 
but there's not much tuning to do to the arc. It's adaptive automatically does uh, the best thing uh, and doesn't really expose controls for you to, to change those cranks manually, but it generally does the right thing. And you can look at it if you if you're on FreeBSD, when you run top, you'll see the MRU and MFU numbers in top on the arc field there. Uh, and that helps you know how much is frequent versus recent. It will default to about 50-50. For example, if there's no files you're using frequently, say just after boot, then the MRU will fill up more than 50% because the other one's not full yet. And then it'll push back and do the right thing. And some uh, people plot even uh, the MRU and FRU over time or most recently used and uh, and to see like how did it change over time was it more recently using or was it more frequently using the the arc contents so yeah it's great and anyway i explained the algorithms and the stuff uh, better in that other talk Uh, and so there's a side note as well in the message. Uh, it would be great if you guys put a big button somewhere on the BSD Now TV homepage and how to send uh, in these questions, like ask a question, get an answer on the show, click here. Uh, since you ask for more questions on the show, yeah, we do that um, uh, because people sometimes didn't send enough, uh, but now they have. Yes, adding a link is a really good idea. I don't know why we didn't think of that. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we'll uh, feed that back to our uh, homepage folks and maybe this will be a bit more uh, front and center next time. So yeah, thanks for the question and the feedback. And I think that pretty much wraps up this episode. Yep, it does. So uh, we thank you for listening. Again, if you have anything for us, uh, a show topic, you, we should cover a comment or a question like this one, uh, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And then we'll have a future episode filled with content from you. 